TGIM Team RE. This is episode 296. Really saw that the most authentic connection and relationships that I have with people have happened without alcohol being present. And that was such a big light bulb moment for me. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Didi. Didi took her last drink on Cinco de Mayo 2020. She is from California and she is 29 years old. You guys, I'm excited. This weekend is a virtual conference called Regionals. I've been looking forward to this for the last couple months and I can't believe that the time is almost here. This event, I've mentioned it before, and as you all know, was originally planned to be an in-person event. Due to COVID, we had to shift gears and we are making this a virtual party. We've got some raffle prizes, workshops, breakout sessions, and even a joke contest on the itinerary. The goal of this event is to come together in spite of all the complications and provide a safe place to facilitate healing while keeping things fun and authentic. This event is free for all Cafe RE members and will be hosted via Zoom this Friday and Saturday. Reach out to me at my email, odette at recoveryelevator.com if you want to join us. I can send you the link to register directly back to your inbox. I can't wait to see you all there. And the full itinerary is also on our website in case you want to check it out. So just go to recoveryelevator.com and you can check out all the details on the site. Alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. A couple of weeks ago, I watched a documentary that came out on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. This documentary explores the dangerous human impact of social networking with tech experts sounding the alarm on their own creations. So I took that from Netflix's website. That's the description. Tech experts sounding the alarm on their own creations. I think that at this point, many of us are already aware of how addicting our devices can be. And like many of us once did with alcohol, we've created some rules to attempt moderation around our screen time usage. I mean, iPhones even have that new screen time monitoring thingy as part of the phone. So there's a lot of people who are trying to monitor their screen time is what I'm trying to say. And 2020 has shifted our routines, our lives, and for thousands of people, this means that they've spent more time at home and more time on their phone, more time on social media, right? Our phones are used as a distraction or as a coping mechanism, and it affects all of us. The obvious side effects of us wasting time on our phones are multitasking and just mindlessly scrolling. But what the documentary really uncovers is the direct correlation between mental health and social media use. Technology is one of those things that is meant to bring us together, but it can ultimately drive isolation. And when we isolate, we miss out on the one thing that we are meant to be doing in the first place, which is connecting. The algorithms of these applications are actually supposed to hook us in. 
They are made to hold our attention. And these companies are competing against each other and fighting for our attention. For many users, social media becomes a comparison trap, a place where our realities of life are distorted as we're exposed to highlight reels and filters of what seem to be perfect lives on every single post. This ultimately makes us feel inadequate. And when we feel inadequate, we want relief. We find that drinking or eating or using the phone even more are that immediate relief. We get depressed, we get anxious, and we stay on our phones. So it's like this vicious cycle. And here are some stats that I wanted to share that were listed on the documentary that really were shocking. So I went back after I watched this once because I heard the stats and I wanted to share. I went back, I played and paused as I wrote all of this down. So this is a quote. There's been an increase in depression and anxiety for American teenagers, which began right around 2011 and 2013. The number of teenage girls out of 100,000 in this country who were admitted to a hospital because they cut themselves or harmed themselves was pretty stable up until 2010, 2011, and then it began going way up. It's up 62% for older teen girls and 189% for preteen girls. Even more horrifying, we see the same pattern with suicide. The older teen girls from 15 to 19 years old, they're up 70% compared to the first decade of the century. The preteen girls are up 151%, and that pattern points directly to social media. Gen Z, who are kids that were born after 1996 or so, are the first generation of kids that got on social media during middle school. This whole generation is more anxious, more fragile, and more depressed. And for every hospital admission, there is a family that is traumatized and horrified. Okay, that's the end of the quote. And why am I bringing this up on a podcast that is about alcohol? For me, this is all a part of the same bucket, guys. Mental health matters. And although I don't have the stats at the tip of my fingers right now, I am certain that social media has increased levels of alcohol use in users. It can even be triggering because once you're sober, there seem to be all of these recovery accounts or this information that shows on the internet that once you're cured, you're cured and the journeys and recovery are perfect. And that's not reality. All of this is intertwined, and I personally felt like it was relevant to bring this up on the show, especially as we've been talking about co-occurring disorders. My dad, who I love to death and who is my sober hero, is having a really hard time with social media. His brain, our brains are smart, and his brain seems to have found that his phone could be a replacement for this dopamine fix that he used to get through drugs and alcohol. And who am I kidding? I mean, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Sometimes I myself notice how I've been checking out on my phone or how I go to my phone when I'm having feelings of discomfort and I just want some relief. Okay, so this is all a lot of information and it's not very chipper. <laughs> it's kind of depressing, but that's not the point. I just wanted to bring awareness to this and talk also about what can we do. You know, there are certainly some benefits to smart devices. My kids get to call their grandparents that are in Mexico. We get to work from home during this pandemic. We are able to access information quicker than ever. 
uh, I'm able to order ice cream on a moment's notice and just get it delivered to my door. And we're able to build community through social media. I mean, hello, Recovery Elevator. So it's not all bad news. And I'm coming back to the topic of protecting your energy and setting boundaries. If you recognize that this is a problem, at the end of the documentary, I really appreciated this. Some of these tech experts give some solutions that they recommend that we can put in place to assist with this relationship that we have with our devices. So some of these are, number one, talk about it. Talk about it with your friends, with your family. How do you feel when people around you are on their devices? What are your needs? Talk about it. Talk about it. Have these conversations. Number two, uninstall apps that you can go without. Likely unsubscribe from email lists that you can go without. Unfollow people that don't add value to your life or that trigger you. Protect your energy. Number three, turn off notifications. I did this a while ago and it's been a game changer. If there's an emergency, somebody's going to pick up the call and call me. Notifications aren't an emergency or they shouldn't be. That's what I think. Number four, they recommend you look for a Chrome extension that removes recommendations, that removes all possible clickbait. Number five, before you share any facts that you found on the internet, fact check yourself. There are some very unreliable resources on the internet and it's important that we are sharing and spreading reliable information. Something is backing up the data that we're just sharing. Number six, am I on number six? Yes, number six. If you have kids and you are concerned about this, delay on giving devices to your children. People who work in this industry have very strong boundaries around giving their phones to their kids. So for any parents out there, I thought I'd share. And number seven, try to have your devices out of the bedroom at a fixed time every night. It's a great habit to build. And if any of you guys watch the documentary, again, it's called The Social Dilemma and it's on Netflix. If you have any thoughts, just let me know. Happy to discuss further. All right. Eso es todo. That's my weekly dose of rambles on Ari for this episode. And before we hear from Didi, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. When departing from alcohol, here are the two main keys to success. You need a supportive and loving community. And you have to create accountability with others who have the same goal in mind. Whether you want to ditch the booze for a month, a year, or are simply sober curious, you'll get both of these on Cafe RE. These groups are unsearchable on Facebook. What is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19, you get access to the community, get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Another portion goes to in-person meetups. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to see you there. Didi, how are you today? 
I am good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much. And listeners, I'm super excited to have Didi on today. I know her through our Cafe RE membership, and I also know her through social media and a little bird told me that she just celebrated 90 days yesterday. So yay, I'm so happy to have you on. How are you feeling? I'm so excited. Um, I was just saying it's just it's nice having the timing with this with my 90 days yesterday and then getting to come on and talk to you this morning is just such a highlight in the last few months. Thank you so much for reaching out to share your story. Did you do anything to celebrate? Are you a celebrator? You know, I took a little mini trip this past weekend with my fiance uh, to celebrate. It was a few days before, but he also has the same sobriety date as me. So it was really nice to just get away the two of us and kind of reflect on everything. Oh, I love that. I love that. Thanks for sharing. And let's get yeah. right into it, Dee, Dee When was the last time you had a drink? I know it was 91 days ago, but what's your date <laughs> Yeah, so my my last drink was on my 29th birthday, um, which was on Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, 2020. So yeah. I love that you brought up Cinco de Mayo because I have not talked about this on the podcast. But listeners, you guys know I'm born and raised in Mexico. We do not drink on Cinco de Mayo as much as Americans drink on Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> it's actually not even our Independence Day, which a lot of people think. So I was just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> Thanks, Didi. And let us know a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where do you live? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun? Yeah. So I am 29 years old. I live in beautiful Santa Barbara, California. Um, with my fiance and our two dogs. We have a golden retriever and a French bulldog who are our little bundles of joy. I am the director of development for a nonprofit in Santa Barbara. Just love what I do. For fun, I'm still kind of trying to figure that out, honestly. Uh, sobriety has kind of opened my eyes to um, what I really enjoy doing in my free time. And I have recently started getting back into crafting and um, kind of trying to find creative outlets. I started making candles during quarantine, which was really fun. And right now I'm doing a lot of crafts for uh, kind of planning our, our wedding, which is which was supposed to happen in October and is now kind of changed. <laughs> Talk about having to adjust a major life event. Yeah, I mean, adjusting a wedding is huge, but it's also kind of going hand in hand with the decision to not drink, which is really cool. I think for me, a wedding is very symbolic of being intoxicated and drinking and partying. And and that was kind of what I was looking forward to for my own wedding. And so once I made the decision to, to give up alcohol, it kind of shifted my perspective on the wedding and really focus on the importance of the marriage versus the party part of it. So I've learned to kind of go with the flow uh, through COVID and, and just take life as it comes because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And the best part about celebrating that day sober is that you will actually get to remember all of it. <laughs> I am very excited for that. I uh, always had a, had this fear in the back of my mind that I would get extremely wasted at my wedding and, and just either be embarrassing or, you know, just not, not remember those precious moments that I'll never get back. So I'm thrilled to be able to experience that with a clear mind. 
I love it. Thanks for sharing. And how neat that you will be able to contribute with something you made now that you're back to crafting and candle making. That's going to make it even more special. Can you give listeners a little background on your history with drinking, Didi? When did you start? When did you realize alcohol was no longer serving your goals? And just tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, so I always kind of like to start off with um, the fact that alcoholism does run in my family. I grew up being very aware that I needed to be careful with drinking. My uh, my dad stopped drinking 14 years ago, and he kind of always gave me the you know the little warnings along the way, like just be careful and be cautious. Never saying that it was a problem for me, but I was always aware that it could develop into a problem. And he has been a huge inspiration for me in the last 90 days, just reflecting back on his 14 years and seeing how he's kind of approached life without alcohol is just amazing. But I really didn't drink too much when I was younger. I was pretty sheltered and and good in high school. I barely drank then. I think my first actual drink was maybe 15 years old, 16, but very innocent, just, you know, kind of trying the parents' vodka in the in the cabinet or, you know, with girlfriends over um, a slumber party or something like that. But I I didn't really drink until I turned 21. And even then, I, I, I didn't really like alcohol. I barely liked anything, to be honest. I kind of just kind of tried to do it socially fitting in um, in the first few years. And eventually, I developed a taste for wine, which was my alcohol of choice. But I, I started to notice alcohol take more of a, 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 a presence in my life during a relationship with somebody. I was in a long-term relationship with someone for five years. And around 2013, in the beginning of that, is kind of when I started to notice a shift. I started to associate the feelings of being loved with being intoxicated. And looking back now, as a 29-year-old, it's, it's pretty dangerous to have that. I was in a relationship with someone who only expressed feelings of love while he was drunk. And that was really hard for me. Um, So it became kind of a thing where if I was tipsy or drinking, then I would feel loved and beautiful and wanted, which kind of just started a downward spiral, I guess. But I never I never had any huge negative consequences. It didn't really alcohol didn't really take over my life. I, I was kind of a social drinker for those first few years still. But around 2017 is when I realized that I was starting to drink alone. And that had always been a rule for me was I'm not drinking by myself. And I started to kind of use my dogs as an excuse. Well, I'm not drinking alone if my dogs are with me. And I could I could tell that I was able to consume more. And, you know, a bottle of wine in one night became regular for me. Whereas before, a bottle of wine would have made me sick as a dog the next day and, you know, stay home from work type of thing. I went through periods of time around 2018 and 2019 where I would kind of give up alcohol. And those were more resolutions like I'm not going to drink for the month of February or I'm going to take a two week kind of a two week break and do a little detox. But I never really tried to give up alcohol for good. It was just short periods of time. And then I met my fiance in 2019. We just had a wonderful love story, fell head over heels really fast, got engaged right after Thanksgiving. And in the last kind of part of 2019 and beginning of 2020, we used our our engagement as a way to celebrate a lot. So drinking became, it, it was a daily thing for the, for the last year. And 
then COVID hit, quarantined, being at home a lot, and finally, you know, kind of realized that alcohol was starting to really to take to take over in a way that I wasn't comfortable with. And on my 29th birthday, after a drunken night that was pretty awful, looking back on it, I uh, made the decision to to give up alcohol and, and to make it a decision versus a resolution, um, which I had never done before. So this is my first attempt at sobriety. Oh, so many things that I want to that want to point out. And I have some follow up questions. So I'm really grateful that you're brave enough to share about that attachment style that you had in your previous relationship, because I've learned a lot recently in the last couple of years about we all just want the same things, but how we get it and how we attach to other people sometimes may not be the best way. But if we're still getting what our heart and our soul wants, which is love for all of us, then we're going to do it until it hurts or we learn a new behavior. And it sounds like you were in that, that dynamic with your ex and you were aware of it. And I know that had to be very painful. And I'm just grateful that you shared because I think that takes a lot of courage. And that had to be that had to be hard, just like finding your confidence through a attachment style that wasn't the best for you. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I it's not something I talk a lot about ever. And so even in the last 90 days of not drinking, I've been able to kind of reflect and look back on patterns in my life and kind of see those unhealthy, unhealthy behaviors and ways of thinking. So it's it's all pretty new to me to really analyze it. But, yeah, it's it's a hard thing to talk about. But it's I think a lot of people can can relate to that. And I think a lot a lot of uh, women and, and men, you know, associate the same things with it. Yeah. And I do have questions about you mentioned that around, I think, 2013, 2014, when you started realizing that you were perhaps drinking more than normal. Did you ever think back on what you started telling me about, wait, alcoholism runs in my family, where you were going through these periods of maybe detox or cleanse or whatever you wanted to call it? But did you ever think and connect the dots of like, oh, shoot, like the odds are stacked against me, which is my case as well. My dad's been sober for over a decade, too. So I'm glad we share that. But did you ever go there or were you kind of in denial of like, that's not going to be me? Yeah, I I honestly, I think I was in denial for a lot of it. I It sounds funny, but I didn't know a lot of um, women who had problems with drinking or were open about it. So in my mind, alcoholism ran in the in the family, in the males. I didn't it wasn't it couldn't happen to me because I'm a female. And it sounds so silly now saying it out loud. But that's honestly, I think, how I felt back then is that I I don't have a problem. And maybe it's the men in the family that have a problem, but it couldn't be me. It is yeah. it is not silly at all. I, I am not 100 percent sure that this fact is accurate, but the rates of women drinking are now much higher than they mm-hmm. were before. Like we've been targeted in a way as women. And if anyone's interested in a little bit more of like this dynamic of big, big alcohol targeting women, uh, Holly Whitaker wrote a great book where it's addressed the way that tobacco was targeted to women back then now it's happening with alcohol and I mean yes I mean when we think of AA and old school alcoholic um, stereotypes it is usually a man so you're not crazy for thinking that just wanted to throw that out there (laughs) all right and then tell me Dee Dee so I know you shared at the beginning about 
you and your fiance sharing your date. So did you guys party together the night before your birthday and then decide together the day after? Did you guys have a plan or talk to me a little bit more about that commitment to the decision instead of resolution, like you said? Right. Yeah. You know, I I don't know if this is what I would call spontaneous sobriety, but I think we both we both came to the same conclusion on our own. But we, yeah, we were we were drinking together on my on my birthday with just it was just a, it honestly was a really mellow easy day. It wasn't anything crazy, but just some some things happened that we weren't proud of and just little conversations that kind of came about that really opened our eyes to see like hey, we got to we got to cool it. And he had woken up the next day and I had woken up the next day and both just knew that we were, we were done and whether or not it was forever or for how long, but for right now, alcohol was not serving us well. And I think in the beginning it was hard because we were going through very similar things, you know, experiencing it, but also experiencing it very differently. You know, nobody experiences sobriety in the same way. And so, you know, what I'm going through, I, I have to kind of set different expectations for them what he's going through. But we both knew just that that next morning that that we were going to we were going to see what a life without alcohol would would give us. And thank goodness we did. And it's been really nice having having a live in, you know, support system that, you know, we can talk about it when a craving comes up or something happens. You know, I know that he understands what I'm going through and vice versa, which has been really huge in my own recovery. Yeah, it has to be amazing having that companionship, because I do know that for a lot of people, if it's just one person giving it up, uh, it's just hard, just simply because the dynamic changes. There's no right or wrong way. And people have their own timeline when it comes to making this type of decision. But I do think that anything that can alter like the way things were, it's just it takes an adjustment and a transition. And it just takes time to, like you said, like, understand that everyone's experience should be validated and it's not the same, but how neat that you guys have each other. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's done wonders for our relationship. I think the best thing about sobriety has been just the, the deepening um, of our relationship and, and the amount of connection that we can feel in sober conversations, which is kind of a new concept, honestly, having those really difficult, tough, you know, vulnerable moments without alcohol masking anything um, has made me just fall in love with him so much more over the last 90 days. So I'm extremely grateful for him in this process. Can you tell me, Dee about the last 90 days in terms of routine? Like, did you have to alter some hours in your day? Or tell me a little bit more of like a day in the life of this change. Yeah. So it's it's funny because I look at the last three months and it, and it kind of it's kind of broken up into almost two sections. In the beginning, I... Also, this is how I realized that I have, you know, I I have a problem with drinking is I'm very all or nothing, like I think many of us are. And so in the beginning, I I said to myself that, you know, recovery and, and figuring out how to live a sober life is going to be my primary focus. So I was lucky enough to be working from home during all of the quarantine and was really able to dedicate as much time as I wanted um, to recovery. And so I, I mean, I dove headfirst, just podcast after podcast, books. I, I started going to AA meetings about 10 days into my recovery. And I've been doing five meetings a week ever since then. I got a sponsor right away. 
So in the beginning, it was a lot. I started going back to therapy and I, I really wanted to learn more about myself because I could feel that I was changing as a person and previous thought patterns and behaviors were coming to light. Relationships with family members have, have changed drastically and uh, things that I've done in my past had resurfaced and all of the guilt and shame and feelings that I had um, from things that I had done when I was drinking started bubbling up and in a really hurtful way for me just to understand that I, I could cause pain to somebody else and to a family member that I loved. So I wanted to know, I wanted to know, you know, why am I the way that I am? And I used so many different resources in the beginning. I focused on recovery, like I said, pretty much throughout my entire day for the first 30 days. After a month, maybe 45 days or so, um, up to the two months, I started realizing that life has to be a balance and I can't be a full-time, you know, recovering drinker. And I have to kind of start getting back into more normal routines. And so I started, you know, started working a little bit more um, and really just trying to find that balance between my commitment to, to my recovery, but also living life just by living life and not focusing 100% of my time on the idea that I'm not a drinker anymore. And in the last few weeks, it's it's been amazing because I think I've kind of found that balance that I was really searching for, where I still, I participate in my own recovery on a daily basis. I'm still doing the exact same things. I'm listening, you know, to, to you guys on Recovery Elevator, and I'm still doing my meetings and meeting with my sponsor and just kind of just finding more of a balance between everything now. Yeah, it goes in, it goes in phases and it ebbs and flows depending also on where we're at and what do you think we need. Sometimes it feels a little bit wobbly and you're like, okay, I'm going to double down. But I also <laughs> think that it's very important and it sounds like you've already made that realization of like, I am not just this person in recovery. I am other things. I'm, um, I don't Mm -hmm. know, a daughter, a friend. And then you can start finding that balance. But of of course, you have to fill your cup first, which it sounds like it's exactly what you were trying to do. And I also really want to applaud the fact that you were like taking this approach of self-exploration and like really diving in and getting to know yourself because that's hard. There are parts of (laughs) us that are hard to reconcile with and hard to even like accept dark parts of us. So it sounds like you were also at a point where you were ready to learn more about yourself, whether like outside of the drinking piece, you were just ready to get to know yourself better. Yeah, I, I realized I needed to, there was just no other option. I, I I wanted to understand more about who I am and, and it has been a very painful process. I mean, you know, it's, it's been hard. It's really hard to look at some of those, those dark places inside you and, and learn how to kind of navigate and change them. And, and it's, it's been, it's been a journey and it's been a struggle, but I, I've learned to really rely on all of my support systems to help get me through those moments because I can't do that alone. And just reaching out and talking to somebody and and being vulnerable. I think, I think sobriety really teaches you how to be vulnerable. And I'm extremely thankful for that. If you don't mind sharing, can you let us know how that conversation went with your dad when you told him that you're not drinking anymore? Yeah, it actually happened on my birthdays, on my 29th birthday, so on May 5th. And and he 
he, he's been so supportive. I mean, I think he, I don't know if he knew that I needed to stop drinking. Um, it, it was never something that he had vocalized to me. And I kind of always use that as, well, if I have a problem, my dad will let me know because he stopped drinking. So clearly he can tell if I need to, but it was, it was a really easy conversation because it, it just, it felt so matter of fact to me. Like it wasn't something I had to think through and process. It was just, this is it. And having the support of both my parents, my mom was right there with him and I kind of did it all in one go and just, and let them know like, this is going to be the new, the new norm for me. And it, they met me with a lot of support and understanding and have been there through that whole process. You guys are changing your family's like backbone. You guys are changing <laughs> the future for generations ahead. So that's so cool and powerful to just know that zooming out, you guys are changing the path and how cool that you guys get to do it together. Yeah, we're, we're excited. Um, you know, the thought of getting married and, and starting to get excited about having a family one day and knowing that, you know, hopefully it will be a sober family and, and marriage and everything that I, I honestly never thought it would be. So it's, it's very exciting. What do you do when you get a craving, Didi? Oh, gosh. Well, I feel like I have more emotional cravings than I do physical. <laughs> So for emotional cravings, it's usually seeing somebody drinking a glass of wine on a patio, you know, on a Friday afternoon or something like that. And it's not so much that I want the wine. It's just that I want that feeling that I thought was the best of just relaxing and, and connecting with other people and laughing. So when I have a craving now, you know, I, I really do play the tape forward. I, I think about okay, what would that one glass of wine lead to? Because I know it's not going to stop at one. That's just not, that's not who I am. And I try now to kind of find other ways to fill that, to fill that glass, so to speak. So maybe it's, it's getting some sort of movement and taking a walk. Maybe it's listening to a podcast and being reminded of, okay, this is a decision that I've made and I'm extremely happy about. I've also learned in my 90 days that I freaking love ice cream and I didn't like ice cream before. So I thought, so filling it with something else. So maybe it's, you know, eating an entire pint of Halo Top in, in one sitting and that's, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, there's a book, I think it's called The Power of Habit or something like that. And it talks about the importance of replacing the thing. And, and I know that you mentioned black or white thinker or the fact that you were like all or nothing and mm -hmm. that is very common and I think a lot of the time when we decide to quit drinking we also think of like five other things that we want to pursue like we're also going to uh, spend more time working out and not be on my phone whatever your goals in terms of becoming a better human are we are like we're going to do all the things but I do think that baby steps and knowing that our brain works better with a replacement that maybe it's not going to be a replacement every day to have a pint of ice cream, but maybe it is for the first 30 days and who cares? Like you just have to also give yourself so much grace. You know, it's funny because in the beginning, I still really took that all or nothing mindset. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so close to my wedding and I have to lose weight. And I ended up, I mean, I ended up losing a bunch of weight simply by cutting out the calories of, you know, a bottle of wine every day. Yeah. But I, I did, I did take that approach and I started being really strict with my calorie counting and measuring food. And that kind of took that almost like that addiction uh, replacement of focusing on what I was putting in my body while it's 
healthy decisions to, you know, be mindful of what I'm eating, I also noticed that I was taking it to a different level. And recently I've started to like try to taper off from that because that's not healthy either to just go into um, a completely different mode of, of giving up everything. So I'm, I'm still working on that balance, but, um, I do now allow myself those, those days where, Hey, maybe I want to have a burrito or maybe I'm going to yeah eat some ice cream tonight. There are plenty of books out there on how to how to change habits, how to make change, how to become an achiever, like all of these personal development books. But I think something that isn't talked about and that we really like highlighting here at Recovery Elevator is like it has to be fun. If you're not enjoying it, it's mm-hmm. I mean, life's too short. And if COVID has taught us anything is that that, you know, all we have is today and things can change at any minute. I mean, look what happened to all of us. Collectively, we went through some massive shifts and like it has to be enjoyable. You know, I, I can't imagine just being miserable every day just to keep every single habit and goal and I don't know, rule that I made up for myself in check. I, I, I've chosen just like imperfection and joy over that because it's just not, it's not sustainable. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty awful. It? it sounds hard. So what's your favorite non-alcoholic drink now that you don't drink wine, Didi? Yeah, I'm a big sparkling water fan. Right now I'm on a bubbly kick, the brand bubbly, which is my favorite. We have, we had like eight boxes delivered this weekend. I also started getting into trying to figure out like fun mocktails to kind of feel fancy. So like last night I made a virgin margarita. I do some stuff with like apple cider vinegar and infused fruit and just try to get a little bit creative so that it feels fancy for me. Um, Then I don't miss the alcohol being in the glass. Have you seen the tall boys with bubbly? No. I saw them at Target the other day at checkout and they ha- my favorite is grapefruit and they have them in like the the fridge full of tall boys. At first I was like maybe these are just like their new hard bubbly because everyone's doing hard seltzer yeah. now, right? But no, I mean there are the bubblies that we all love, but now they make the tall boys and I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to take a roadie." <laughs> oh, I we need to find that. And it's funny that you say that. This past weekend we we're at a lake on a little vacation and we stopped at the store after going jet skiing and I got, I wanted to get a sparkling water and I found the sparkling by or a uh, by the like juice that they've made into a sparkling drink, but they had it in a different can that looked like seltzer. And so, and my fiance grabbed a diet Coke and we go to pay and the guy asked us for our ID and we're like, wait, what? And he thought that it was an alcoholic drink. And we had, we were laughing with him cause we're like, it's sparkling water. I promise <laughs> I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, but it's true because now all the seltzers have the hard seltzer so I can see where he was coming from. Yeah, I do too. But I'm, yeah, I'm glad that uh, there's some other fun options for sparkling waters that don't have alcohol in them. Yeah, there's definitely been a boom of sparkly waters and it's a great time to get sober. I'm just going to say <laughs> that there's so many options, people talking about this, uh, sober curious movements. It's it's happening. It is happening. So I'm glad that you are part of it. And tell me, Didi, have you been able to identify some of your emotional triggers? Emotional triggers for for drinking? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Like, are you ever like, oh, I tend to want to drink when I'm lonely or I tend to yeah. want to drink. Have you realized kind of like the root cause of sometimes why you want to drink? I think a lot of it is which is funny because I always identified myself as somebody that drank like when they were just when they were happy and not when they were sad. 
I always kind of prided myself on the fact that alcohol was used to like enhance my mood. But I've learned that when I have moments of being upset or after like a really difficult or draining conversation, that's kind of when I get that emotional craving to just have a glass of wine and sit on the couch and feel like I'm unwinding. And I didn't, I didn't think that was going to be the case, but it is. It's not even so much the happy situations. If I'm in like a group setting and people are drinking and, and having a good time, I'm, I've, I feel now like I've, I've had enough time in my 90 days to just to realize that I can have fun without the alcohol in the cup. So it's, it's, I think it's more when I'm feeling a little bit down that, that I now have an emotional trigger craving for something. Yeah, when you want that like warm blanket comforting <laughs> feeling sometimes. And I also feel like for me, what I've noticed too, it's like maybe it doesn't come in the form of a craving anymore, but I just want relief, like relief, <laughs> relief from a feeling, relief from the discomfort. Like I just want to come up for some air and like we work through feelings one feeling at a time and it's really cool to build that confidence muscle of like ooh, I can actually sit with this really shitty physical feeling and it'll it'll go away oh my gosh sitting with feelings has been so new for me because I always did mask any sort of hard feeling or emotion with with a substance usually alcohol or wine so learning to yeah, just kind of like process what I'm feeling and sitting on the couch with nothing is has has been a has been a struggle, but it's been a really good lesson to learn that I can sit with difficult thoughts and feelings and emotions and that it will pass. I think learning that emotions are temporary has been really helpful for me, that it's not gonna feel like that forever. Um, and just kind of accepting it and, and, and acknowledging what is coming up for me has been really huge. Yeah, we can do hard things. I follow you on social media, Didi, and I know that you openly share about your journey. So I wanted to ask, how has that been for you? And have you gotten any pushback from like close friends or family or people who knew Didi that did drink and now that you've changed? How has that been for you, just sharing that publicly and openly? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting thing because I have two different Instagram accounts and I, I've always had one that I used, God, I started it back in like 2014 just to kind of help inspire me for my fitness and working out and healthy eating and all of that. So that one is filled with strangers. I mean, I only have a handful of people I know in real life on there and I had documented weight loss journeys and all of that stuff and it's been really fun to kind of look back. but. That was the first platform that I used to open up about sobriety because I had never done it in my in my real life, you know, friends um, on, on some of those platforms. So I feel like I gained the confidence to talk about sobriety through that um, with people I didn't know. It's a lot easier for me to share about my experience and my struggle with alcohol to those that are strangers. And... I told so many people in my life that I quit drinking. I, I really did share it with a, hand, a handful of people in my life. But I made the decision yesterday on my 90 days to, to really share it with my wider real life friends base. And so I, I did a social media post um, to everybody and just said, you know, I, I had my last drink 90 days ago and I shared a few lessons that I learned and it was liberating. I had wanted to share about my sobriety before, but I always used my 90 day, 
milestone as kind of a benchmark to make sure that I, that I could do this. And I knew once I hit 90 days that, okay, like it's time to start, it's time to start talking about it and to not feel ashamed of the decision to not drink. So I was so scared to post it yesterday. Um, I had to text one of my sober friends from my meetings and she encouraged me to do it. But it felt so good and I received such awesome uh, responses and feedback. I didn't have any single negative comments. You know, maybe people are thinking them, I'm not sure, but nobody ever openly said anything negative to me and I was just met with love and acceptance and a lot of kind words from people I never expected to, to have even noticed the post, let alone comment or send a message. 90 days is a huge deal. And I am so happy that you decided to share. And even if it's baby steps, you know, like some people respect their privacy and won't tell people. Some people will tell everyone the next day they made the decision, like myself, even though I went back to drinking. <laughs> uh, that was awkward. But I feel like even just telling one person at a time, it chips away at the shame and it chips away at that feeling of, like you said, of like the burden and the weight. So I'm glad you felt really great about it afterwards. And what I always tell people that we seem to forget, it's like when we share about our struggles, we are feeling the feelings. It feels like, oh my gosh, I'm going to share this big, scary thing about myself. But that can provide so much relief to somebody else who needs you at that time. And you'll never get to be in someone else's feelings or in someone else's experience. But that's what I try to imagine when I do something that's a little bit uncomfortable for me. Like, I'm just hoping someone will catch this. Like, someone will catch this as a sign, as strength, whatever. But like... It's not about me. It's about all of us. And I'm just really happy that you are a part of this movement and of this solution. Because even like coming onto this podcast, what a huge deal. You know, a lot of people tune in every single Monday and you're going to help so many by sharing your story. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to this podcast in particular and just felt like somebody's, you know, speaking directly to me and if that can help one person, then that's awesome. <laughs> Didi, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I am. If you could talk to Didi on day one, what would you say to her? I would tell her that in this moment, exactly where you are, that you are enough. Yes, we are worth it. What is a light bulb moment you've had during this journey? Something that I've heard a lot through Recovery Elevator, um, that the opposite of addiction is connection. And I didn't quite understand that until I stopped drinking and really saw that the most authentic connection and relationships that I have with people have happened without alcohol being present. And that was such a big light bulb moment for me. What are you excited about right now? Right now, I'm excited about getting married to my fiance and starting a, a life together and doing it, doing it without booze. <laughs> yes. What is your favorite ice cream flavor, Didi? My favorite ice cream flavor probably has to be chocolate chip cookie dough. Yum. What are some of your favorite resources in recovery? Definitely this podcast. Um, I started listening to you guys after I binged, um, recovery happy hour. So those kind of went hand in hand for me. I love my 
AA meetings. That's been a huge part of my recovery and the work I do with my sponsor. And then also my, my therapist, who I found out is 10 years sober after I told her about my decision to stop drinking. So that was pretty awesome. You'll notice you're, you'll find more and more people that are sober. It's just what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and shout out to my recovery unicorn, Trisha Lewis, who hosts yes. the Recovery Happy Hour podcast. She does amazing work. So I'll make sure that Katie drops her podcast on the show notes as well. Thank you for bringing that resource up. She's amazing. And before we depart, Didi, can you give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line. You might need to say bye to booze. Um, If the first time you've ever been honest with a doctor about your amount of drinking uh, was after you made the decision to stop. And that was something I did a few days after I quit. I feel like you are not alone on this, Didi. I feel like so many people have had to lie about their drinking during their medical visits. So you guys, if Didi and I can do this, so can you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I can't wait for everybody to listen to this. And I appreciate you. Take care and I'll see you soon. Thank you, Didi. All righty. Thank you. Take care. All righty. Have a good one. You too. Very well, Timari. That is it for this episode. And before I say adios, here is this week's RE challenge. Take inventory of the relationship that you have with your smartphone. Be honest and maybe make a small list of new boundaries that you can set in place. Start small. Remember that baby steps add up and small tweaks lead to impactful change. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, turn those effing notifications off. Life's too short to be looking down at your phone all the time. I love you guys. Have a great week. <laughs>